You're listening to Green State, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality, the agency responsible for restoring, maintaining, and enhancing the quality of Oregon's air, land, and water. On Green State, you'll hear about DEQ projects, programs, and emerging environmental issues facing Oregonians. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Green State, a podcast where we talk about how the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality is protecting your air, land, and water. I'm Lauren Wordis. And I'm Dylan Darling. We're communications staff here at DEQ and the hosts of Green State. Happy Oath Month to everyone out there. We thought a lot about what to talk about during Oath Month when we were thinking about the environment. So we decided to talk about a topic on the minds of a lot of people and organizations, environmental justice and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And folks listening will likely be unsurprised to learn that the pollution and contamination that impact our air, land, and water disproportionately impact Black, Indigenous, and people of color, commonly referred to as the BIPOC community. A lot of that has to do with the racist land use policies and the racist white people who are in charge of making decisions. But folks may be more surprised to know that even the environmental and conservation movements have a bit of a racist history, and we're going to talk about more of that today. Oregon certainly has a well-documented racist history. That history includes things like the exclusion law that banned Black people from living in the state owning property, or making contracts. People of color have been displaced all over the state, but notably in Portland during the Vanport floods and in places where the interstates and local hospitals are cited. And just pure violence from having the largest KKK population per capita in the 1920s. And many of these people actually even held political office in Oregon. And this racist history really is sort of its own pollution that has now permeated the policies, laws, thoughts, beliefs, and actions of the people and institutions here in Oregon. And as I was researching, um, I found Walata Imarisha, a scholar and activist who has presented all over Oregon as part of the Oregon Humanities Conservation Project. Imarisha noted... Oregon is a useful case study for the rest of the nation because the only thing unique about Oregon is it was bold enough to write it down. The same policies, practices, and ideologies that shaped Oregon shaped the nation as a whole. Fortunately, we do see more institutions trying to change and look at their own practices and histories of discrimination in their communities. Among these institutions is DEQ which is why today we're having a conversation with three staff involved in our agency's transformation. Camille, Natalie, and Jimena, welcome to the podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Natalie Nava. I am your DEI coordinator, and I'm the agency's first ever DEI coordinator, and I have been in my role just under four months. Um, my name is Camille, and I am in the Northwest Region Water Quality at DEQ. Um, I'm also participating in the environmental justice work group. Hi, my name is Jimena and I currently work for the Northwest Region Cleanup Program as the Cleanup Program Coordinator and I'm also involved with the BIPOC group at DEQ. I am on the DEI Council and I am leading the environmental justice work group within the agency. 
And Camille came up with a great idea for how to start this conversation. So if you want to go ahead and explain that. Yeah, thanks. Um, so when I was first approached about this episode for this podcast, I started to wonder about Oregon in the past um, and how its environment was viewed. So I was really going into this like mind trip, if you will. And I went to the Oregon Historical Society's website because I thought that would be a great place to start. And me being a mappy person found their cool web map tool. So this web map pretty much shows recorded historical events all at once. So at first I wanted to get a sense of how the Lewis and Clark party described Oregon when they arrived and perhaps contrast it with the Native Americans that were already in Oregon. I found a lot of interesting history, but there was one point on the map that it really intrigued me. Her marker on the map is on the Warm Springs Reservation, and I started to read about her contributions. Um, and that person is Elizabeth Woody, who is an Oregon Poet Laureate and the first Native American to be awarded the position. Her poems are deeply connected to the landscapes of Oregon, and I wanted to open up this conversation with her perspective of Oregon's environment. In the poem, Elizabeth Woody references Celilo Falls, which is located on the Columbia River, upriver from the Dalles. The poem is called She Who Watches, The Names Are Prayer. She Who Watches, The Names Are Prayer. For David So Happy, April 25th, 1925 to May 7th, 1991. My humanness is an embellished tongue. The bell, a yellow mouth of September's moon, beats outward. She speaks for all the names that clang in memorial. There is Celilo, dispossessed, the village of neglect and bad structure. The falls are faint rocks and rippled in the placid lake of backwaters. With a sad stone grief and wisdom, I overlook the railroad the tight bands rail along the whirls of the Columbia. Drowning is a sensation fishermen and their wives know of. Men who fished, son after father. There are drownings in the Dalles, hanging in jails and off-reservation suicide towns. A strange land awaits the fishermen as it had for the Nez Perce, the Navajo, the Cheyenne, those who wailed in the long walks, keened open the graves of their families, the dead children, my children, with names handed down and unused. Nimipu, Dene, Tsitsitsas, the people, pure in emergence, the immense mother is crying, human beings. The words are tremors in the ribcage of hills. The consumption of loneliness binds us. Children lie on the railroad tracks to die from the wail of night and spirits. I watch for the rushing head of chaos and flat hands grope from the cattle cars, clamor in the swift, fresh air. A sky is clicking through the regular slats. The tail whips the dusty battles of the Indian Wars, unsettling itself, nude and raw. Celilo Falls sank 
unwillingly in the new trading, and everyone dissolved from the fall. So that clip that you just heard is part of OPB's、um, program, Transcending Chaos Through Art. It can be found on YouTube, and it's、uh, just such a wonderful poem because not only does she describe Sililo Falls in particular, so a very significant part of the environment、uh, for this community, but she also Hints at some of the political struggles that the people might have gone through. So, going back to the history of Sililo Falls, it's a great example of traditional natural resource management that was obstructed by Eurocentric methods. Sililo Falls had been the salmon fishing center for many tribes, including Yakima, Nez Perce, Omatilla, and Warm Springs tribes. Scaffolding were constructed throughout the site where fishermen can stand to catch fish. And when I say scaffolding, I mean scaffolding—the same ones that you would see, perhaps, on the side of a, a building that's being constructed. It looks very precarious.、Um, the white water was incredibly dangerous. That if a fisherman were to fall, it often resulted in fatality. During the fishing season at Sililo Falls, there would be a bustling marketplace at the Sililo Village, as well as entertainment. It was a site of cultural significance for many. On March 10, 1957, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers had completed the construction of the Dalles Dam, which is still there today, eight miles downstream from the falls. The dam's completion meant that in just under four hours, after the concrete gates restricted the flow of the Columbia River. Increasing the water level and submerging the fishing sites at Sililo Falls and portions of the Sililo Village, while the government would compensate the tribes、um, in, in money, it does not compensate for the loss of cultural and community resources and space.、Um, you can locate Sililo Falls today on the on the map as Sililo Lake. On the Army Corps of Engineers website, the stated reason for the construction of the Dalles Dam. Among other things, is to manage water quality at the Columbia River and produce power for Oregon. Great, thank you so much for that. That was a wonderful way to start this conversation. And I'll say, you know, as someone who grew up and had their young education here in Oregon, it's something that is missing from the story, certainly here across the nation as well. Um, so that's a great resource that we'll definitely link to in the show notes. So if people want to see. All of that history and learn more about it. They can do that. For a long time, we spent a lot of energy fighting the environment, combating the elements to harness their utility. But then you have a shift in the conservation movement: preservation of national parks, creation of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, etc. All, all that. We might look back at, on these things as good now. In hindsight, these efforts are not as idyllic as they seemed at the time. And I think that part of what we want to talk about today is about how, while all of that is really in like the typically progressive space, that that's not necessarily、um, what has has transpired. And so, Natalie, I know you had、um, some context to provide around. What environmentalism and conservation movements have looked like over time? Yeah. So when we think about sustainability and environmentalism, we tend to associate those things with progressive values, 
But what many people don't know is that some of the key players of the early conservation movement were actually influenced by racist ideas and probably wouldn't be considered progressive at all by today's standards. So early conservationists from the late 1880s and early 1900s like Teddy Roosevelt, Madison Grant, and Henry Fairfield Osborne were really instrumental in helping establish our national park system, our national forests, and other public lands. And these early conservationists were very motivated by the idea of preserving and protecting our public lands, but they were actually mainly interested in protecting what they considered to be the more noble or more aristocratic parts of nature. For example, moose and elk and redwood trees. And this idea that there is a hierarchy in nature might seem strange at first, but it makes sense when we look at some of the conservationists' views about race and racial hierarchy. Early conservationists were very concerned with the decline of what they referred to as the Nordic population. They believed that Nordic peoples needed to be protected. Today, we refer to these kinds of ideas as white supremacy. And so just like these more noble or more inherently aristocratic Nordic peoples needed to be prioritized over other races and protected, the more noble parts of nature needed to be saved as well. And so these early conservationist views, uh, legacy continues to be seen in how we practice conservation. Oftentimes, conservation really overwhelmingly fails to involve local communities in environmental interventions, and it tends to prioritize protecting the wilderness as opposed to preserving for example, local and indigenous cultures and traditions. And indigenous uh, peoples were really the original stewards of these lands. That's a great point, Natalie. And I, I like that um, you brought up that these were progressive values, because I think even in today's times, um, conservation movement um, tends to be associated with um, yeah, like progressiveness and, you know, like really thinking about the society um, without actually maybe digging deeper into who these um, conservation values and policies that are made from them um, might affect um, because we, we, we don't all have the same resources. I think another thing that's important to note here is that today, there is really a focus on creating uh, access around natural resources and around our public spaces. But I don't believe that that was really the motivation for the early conservationists, right? It was definitely, uh, you know, for Nordic folks, for more aristocratic folks to really have access to nature, but the priority wasn't for everyone to have the same access. Yeah, I actually attended a training, um, I think it was late last year, and one of the speakers was talking about how in the um, in the Grand Canyon, there's an area where tourists are able to take pictures and, you know, it's the, the place where everybody kind of goes, the main tourist attraction. But she was uh, of native descent and she was saying that her tribe, which is in very close proximity to the Grand Canyon, currently does not have running water, but those tourist attractions do. 
So when we're thinking of conservation and preserving the environment, we're doing so for profit. We're doing so to accommodate the tourists that are going to those areas, but not really taking care of the communities that live there. And there was another presentation from somebody who uh, lived in Africa and had a similar experience with those um what is it, those uh, jungle tourist attractions where tourists go in to see nature, uh, untouched nature, quote unquote. And in reality, they're actually kicking people out of their homes and trying to preserve that. And it's counteractive to the conservation movement because instead of actually conserving the environment as a whole, they're pushing people who were indigenous to that area out for their own profit and benefit. It's a double-edged sword, and when we talk about conservationism, we really have to deep dive into what is actually going on and not just take it at face value because like, we like to think that because a, a piece of land is untouched, that, it, that we're preserving nature and that we're doing right by nature, when in reality, we may not be doing right by the people that actually should be tending to the land. Something that um, I'm noticing with, with these comments, too, is the practice of, um, you know, going into, Amena, you mentioned untouched nature, um, but that's based off of a very specific um, and biased perspective. And so, um, like with, um, you know, like with the start of this podcast, we, you know, like I talked about um, the Lewis and Clark party and what might have been their perspective of the nature in Oregon, um, but like wanting to contrast that with what is already the perspective in Oregon at that time. Um, and we certainly, you know, see this um, in many aspects of our history. And I, I feel like what I'm hearing you all say is that part of what this is when we're talking about untouched is sort of an erasure of the idea that there was anyone there before white people. And that, you know, preserving it in its natural untouched state is sort of for some reason this better and higher use, but may in fact just be sort of a more convenient version of history than, well, there were people here and now it's our land and now we're preserving it, but for you. So isn't that okay? And for me, it's, it's really hard to come to terms with when we're talking about, you know, national parks and Jimena brought up the Grand Canyon and you think of these places that, oh, wow, we've, you know, there's this sense of we've done this wonderful thing to protect a place, but it's then there's so much pain and suffering that has gone into it. And to people who really value it, they may have just been totally pushed away and and wiped away. Um, it, it, it's tough thinking about all those places where you go and you take those happy family photos, but to think of, you know, what's been taken in those. It seems a little both and, right? Like you can, if you're going to go to the environment and appreciate the environment, it seems like you should get to have, you should go there with the whole story in mind. And so, you know, we're talking about the parts of environmentalism that are you know, preserve the thing, conserve the thing, and then environmental justice on 
a big broad scale seems like it's only tipped into like common vernacular more recently, but it has um, a deeper background that Jimena can describe for us. So the environmental justice movement was actually born in the late uh, 1970s, and it was founded by uh, Dr. Robert D. Bullard. And this kind of fell on his lap out of nowhere because he was recruited to do some work on the Beam versus Southwestern Waste Management Corporation lawsuit. He got roped in because his wife was the attorney on it. And essentially, the background of that case is that a company was trying to put a landfill in the middle of a predominantly black, middle class, and suburban neighborhood. And the state gave the thumbs up and said that it was okay for it to be located in that area. And so the residents, obviously upset, decided to file a lawsuit against the landfill company. And so in his research, he discovered that in Houston, five out of the five city-owned landfills, six out of the eight city-owned incinerators, and three out of the four privately-owned landfills were in Black neighborhoods, which meant that more than 80% of all the garbage that was dumped in Houston in the 20s up until 1978 was dumped in Black neighborhoods, even though Black people in that area only made up 25% of the population. And the only common thing that they all had is their skin color. It wasn't lower class. It wasn't income based. It was purely skin color. And so unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, this was the first of its kind case in the U.S. because they charged environmental discrimination in a waste facility that through civil rights laws. But on the flip side, this case was not successful. Uh, They did end up placing the landfill in that area, but his research and approach paved the way for something far greater than this case, and it laid the foundation for the environmental justice movement that we know today. As a result of this, in 1994, Bill Clinton actually passed a bill that defined environmental justice for the first time, and Robert D. Bullard was there in office while it was being signed by the president. So he really began something bigger than he even imagined when he was going into this lawsuit. What this brings up for me is the fact that kind of with whatever environmental issue we're talking about, we can see disparate impacts. Sometimes it's more obvious and sometimes it's a lot less obvious and it's just completely hidden from view. So before I moved into DEI work, I worked in environmental campaigns The last campaign that I worked on was around plastic pollution, something that folks might not know, right? We toss all of our recycling and plastics into the bin and away it goes, you know, presumably to to greener pastures. A lot of that uh, actually ends up in Asia. So China won't take our plastic waste anymore. So now it goes to countries like Malaysia, who really don't have any infrastructure to deal with just the massive amount of waste that uh, the West sends them. And so then it ends up uh, in their oceans. And I think a lot of times we tend to uh, point the finger at, you know, other cultures or other countries who aren't doing their part around environmental protection. Meanwhile, we're just, you know, <laughs> tossing our tossing our plastic water bottles in the bin and assuming that everything's fine. So there are, again, just like at, at high level structural levels, uh, we are really 
putting burdens on communities today with so many different issues. I really like that you brought up the structural part of it because that's what it is. It's the structure that is allowing this to continue. Racism didn't just randomly appear one day. It's the foundation of this country. It has been present since the founding fathers got here. And they were the ones that were crafting the laws, the legislations, the rules under which we still continue to operate. They wrote the Constitution. They wrote all of the amendments everything. And so when we think about all of these problems that have manifested over the years, we have to think about who the people were in power that were writing these laws because they put effort and time into creating these systems. And if we want these systems to work for us, then we need to be willing to dismantle what's already present and rebuild it again. Because we always hear the the sentiment of like, oh, the system's broken. Oh, th- this isn't this doesn't work because X, Y, Z, like the systems are working the way that they were meant to work. They just were not meant to work for people of color. If we wanted to, like as a country, we would be working towards that. And there's clearly barriers that are in place that are not allowing us to get there. And it's strategic. It's not a coincidence. It's not just, it's just not a coincidence. So in order for us to actually act on environmental justice, we have to put in work, put in funding, put in resources to actually tackle the core of the problem and not just think about band-aid solutions that are just going to cater to symptoms of the disease. Something I want to add to that too is, so bringing it back to, you know, that conservation movement, and some might even argue that conservation movement is a system that is attempting to tackle the environmental um, injustices that is in place today. But I think, you know, like going back to the connection between um, diversity, equity, and inclusion and conservation, I think conservation movement can also be categorized as a band-aid movement, especially because it might not necessarily be serving everyone in the population because of also the systems that it was it was built upon. So, you know, exactly what Jimena um, was just talking about, that there were there are these structures that were thought to be a solution, but something that might be missing in, in a common thread in a lot of the failures for these systems is not really thinking widely enough in who is at the table making these decisions and contributing to these conversations? Um, because if you don't have everybody's perspective in it, then you're not going to be able to provide a solution that works for everybody. I completely agree with that, Camille. I think because we work at a state agency and we work at a state agency in Oregon, we really have a duty to be actually working to unwind all of the ways that the legacy of racism, the legacy of racism from the conservation movement specifically shows up in our work and in our state. And we have to do work in a really different way, all types of work and environmental work as well. We have to be moving towards a more inclusive approach. We have to bring the communities that have been impacted by these issues to the table. We have to bring in folks who are also impacted by these issues into the agency and keep them in the agency to help us do this work uh, more meaningfully and more holistically. 
exactly. And what we do want to talk about is what DEQ is doing to start trying to get towards this transformation that the three of you were talking about. So, um, Natalie, maybe we can start with you to talk about your role since you are our new DEI coordinator. Um, What is that really looking like here at DEQ? Yeah, so I want to start by saying that part of the legacy of the early conservation movement that we talked about is that a lot of nonprofits and advocacy groups and other organizations that are focused on sustainability are still predominantly made up of white staff and DEQ is no different. So only very recently have organizations uh, on a larger scale started to prioritize formal DEI work. Of course, many organizations run by folks of color and indigenous organizations have been uh, doing this work for a long time, but kind of larger or some more mainstream organizations only recently have started to think about how they can better bring in and support staff from historically underrepresented groups. And the murder of George Floyd in 2020 was a huge catalyst for organizations to start to take action. And I think environmental groups have realized that incorporating those more diverse perspectives into the work and creating more inclusive work process can actually help us uh, better accomplish our mission So diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace to me is really about creating an environment where people feel safe to be who they are at work and providing each person with the unique set of tools and resources that they need to thrive because every person needs different things. But kind of going back to what we were saying earlier, it's also about really dismantling all of the harmful policies and procedures and the harmful culture and really establishing something new. So here at DEQ, there was a really incredible grassroots effort of folks from around the agency who had to take matters of DEI into their own hands and help to create my position as the DEI coordinator and help establish our DEI council in our affinity groups. So we're going to be working on looking at all of our organizational policies, for example, how we conduct interviews and hiring so that we're creating a level playing field for folks from all different backgrounds to have an opportunity to come to DEQ and also working to shift our culture so that we can build a culture of trust and accountability and really create shared accountability around DEI work over the long haul. What I'm wondering is in your experience, are there any key policies that benefit organizations when it comes to DEI to make that work effective? Um, you, You know, with everything you were laying out there, what are those key things that they can really focus in on and change to bring this bigger change? That's a really good question, Dylan. I don't know if there's any specific policy, but I think it's probably an unwillingness to be uncomfortable, an unwillingness to call things out and to be accountable, which is uh, something that is really scary and brings up a lot of discomfort and you know, it kind of reminds me of what we were saying earlier about how, you know, the system is really kind of functioning exactly as it was meant to. And that means kind of keeping certain people in charge and keeping a lot of us really comfortable. So if we are serious about values of DEI and doing something new, it really is going to mean a lot of discomfort. It's going to mean sharing power, which is something that a lot of folks aren't used to. 
But my belief is that ultimately all of us are going to be better off for doing that. I know Jimena and Camille, you were both involved in what Natalie was describing as that grassroots movement. And so I don't know if you wanted to speak a little bit to that. This is sort of internal, but there are, you have a ton of people who are really interested and in participating in groups to help support and further this work. And you've both been incredibly instrumental in that effort. Uh, yeah. So that group that Natalie was talking about that created the what is currently the DEI Council, I was part of that. And part of what we were trying to do was to you know, implement DEI in a way that was that was diverse in a lot of ways, not just race or any identifying factors, but also across the agency so we could get different perspectives from Northwest region, Eastern region, Western region. That, that was something that was also very important to us because it's about having diversity in, of every category that you could probably possibly have diversity in. But once we started with that getting that movement up and running. I was having conversations with a separate group of DEQ employees about environmental justice and how to best address it. And so because I was already in those spaces and I was seeing what we were doing with DEI, I decided to reach out to the director and ask him if we could start an environmental justice work group within the agency. And he agreed to let me start it up and it, it started as a word of mouth thing. I mean, first, we had a presentation for the American Geophysical Union, where we were beginning to analyze environmental justice and comparing how our different programs interacted with the EJ screen tool in different communities. And then we opened up that presentation internally at DEQ and we started presenting at different section meetings and different spaces. And it started this whole conversation about what is our role? What can we do to start implementing environmental justice into all the work that we do? Because at the core, we are a re an environmental regulatory agency. So it is our job as DEQ to to take on this role of embodying environmental justice. And so a lot of people were on board with that. And we eventually got a group, I believe our first meeting, there was maybe like 50 people that decided to attend. And we were all talking about environmental justice and what it could look like in the agency and what we wanted to do. And we focused it a lot around the environmental justice screening tool and the potential that that could have. And so it, it really just started as an effort to try to holistically change the way that DEQ operates. Because one thing is to open up the space of DEI and to create a better work culture internally so that people feel like they can thrive, that they can function, that, they're be that their work is being appreciated. Because that is one key factor of it. Because if we internally are not respecting each other and don't have a safe working environment externally, that's going to bleed out to all of the, the people that we're responsible for protecting in the state. And so these two pieces or these two concepts are they're essentially the same, but one is more focused on the internal culture of the agency, while one is more focused on the external and how it is being received by the residents of Oregon. Well, I'm curious, Jimena, um, you know, how do you think addressing environmental justice at DQ 
will improve how the agency protects the environment. Well, one big concept within environmental justice is that we want to make sure that the decisions that we're making are rooted within the community and that the community gets input and gets a say in what goes on. And so there's a lot of ways in which we could do that, and that could be with grant allocation. But another way that that's, that could happen is by doing more outreach and talking to communities more and letting them know what does DEQ have the authority to do? What can we help you with? Because first off, the community doesn't know what DEQ does. They don't know what our jurisdiction is unless they work for DEQ or they're, they're very close to it for some reason. Maybe they're a regulated entity. They're, they don't know what DEQ does. And so that's that's number one is fixing that, is getting out to the communities and letting them know how are we fixing your air, how are we improving your water quality, but also to do public outreach in a way that is engaging to meet them where they're at and to show them what they can do to help themselves and how they can contribute to our public comment periods when there's like a polluted site in their area. Essentially, public outreach is a very key part of environmental justice that we really want to focus on when we do have the funding to conduct that outreach. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's certainly not lost on me that we're, you're saying that with two communications people. And I think Camille, like early on, you and I talked about it's so highly reactive and so rarely proactive, but now, as we get back out there, I am really looking forward to some of that more intentional outreach. And certainly if, you know, we continue to get more, if we get more paid positions and more people who can do that kind of outreach, or at least form more partnerships so um, we can have people who we, we slowly bring in to understand what DEQ does. And we're not just like, hey, we're having a meeting. Can you please like come on this one date? It's in three weeks. We'd love to hear your opinion. And because we do want to hear your opinion, but that's a horrible way to talk to any human. <laughs> um, no one wants to come to your meeting when you come at them like that. And I think that's just the position we're, we're in. Yes. And something to add is everything that we've talked about on, the, on this podcast is connected in some way and is contributing or is a part of that, you know, larger system, larger structure. And even if we we have the funding and we maybe compensate people who are participating, we're still not necessarily acknowledging the potential um, limitations in people's capacity to either get to where we need them to be so that they can participate in these systems or even capacity in terms of time. I mean, at the very basic, you know, like a single mom would not be able to just leave her kids at home on a Wednesday night. <laughs> There's a lot to consider. I think that Dylan, going back to your, you know, like your question of environmental justice and DEQ and how to, how can the agency protect the environment more, more effectively? I think it might take some reimagining of how we view ourselves as a government agency and that at the current state, we are very much top down, but is, it, is there room or is there a way for us to be more collaborative in the sense of like, not only are we um, interacting with our stakeholders who are within our regulated communities, but we're also interacting with the peripheral communities who might be uh, relying on that natural resource or could be affected in some way by some of the projects that we are permitting. 
I don't have the answer on, you know, how to like completely like, you know, take a top down agency and like reimagine it in a, a different framework. But I think that that's also something to consider, especially with the, the changing climate. There's, there's so much about our environment that is changing constantly every day. And we might not necessarily be able to look upon our previous processes and just rely upon those standards and ways that we've done them to deal with the new things that we're we're dealing with. Well, I really like that question, Dylan, about how this new way of working can benefit us. I was just talking with someone today who said, well, you know, if we're doing this inclusive process and, and bringing more diverse perspectives in, isn't that going to take longer to do our work? But it actually saves a lot of time on the back end, right? We can We can try to understand potential negative impacts and mitigate them on the front end to avoid costs, you know, all sorts of potential negative outcomes if we don't involve the people who are impacted by these issues early on. Yeah, that question about longer, it just made me think that there's that saying about something can be, you know, out of fast, cheap and good, it can be two, but not all three. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to choose. So that, this is such a wonderful conversation. Um, and during Earth Month, you might be thinking about how to help the environment. And we hope that this podcast has helped you think a little bit more about what it means to be helping the environment and take on some of that environmental justice lens. So we'll link in the show notes a list of organizations where you can donate your time or donate your money, since there are many, many groups out there, but they all need money to keep doing the really great work that they're doing. So that'll be something that we make available. That's what you like to do during Earth Day slash week slash month. Um, um, I'm a, I'm a big firm believer in volunteering. There's a lot of really great organizations in Oregon. When I first moved to Portland, that was how I made friends, <laughs> was um, doing volunteer work on the weekends. There's so many great ways that you can help people out and so many great organizations outside of maybe some of the typical ones that you might hear. I highly encourage everyone to just look up volunteer opportunities. As Lauren mentioned, hopefully you found this conversation enlightening. And if you'd like to hear more, Jimena, it sounds like you have your own podcast. Do you mind giving us a quick plug for your pod? Uh, yeah, it's called Talk Climate Change to Me. And it's myself and a co-host of mine. His name is Brixton Lieberman. And we talk about different types of environmental issues that are near and dear to our hearts. We've talked about plastic pollution, environmental justice, social justice. So if you have a chance, you should take a listen. It's available on all streaming platforms and also on YouTube. Fantastic. We'll link to that in the show notes. And I know Dylan and I both listened um, ahead of this podcast just to get an idea. And it was great. Thank you all so much for being here today. Um, we really appreciate it. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to Green State, the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality's podcast. And thanks to all the voices who contributed to the conversation. Our music is by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you get our upcoming episodes. You can listen pretty much anywhere you get your podcast. Feel free to rate and review. And if you have any questions or ideas for topics for us to cover, you can reach us at 503-451-0585 or by email at green.state.oregon.gov. To find out more, go to dequblog.com slash greenstate.